welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. Today we bring you our last episode for 2021. We'll be back to kick off another season of Weird Studies in the new year on January 19th. This year was a special one. From Ishmael Reed's Mumbo Jumbo to today's excursion into the world of spiritualism by way of fateful encounters with the likes of Rodney Asher, Jairus, Tamler Summers, Connor Habib, and today's guest Shannon Taggart. It appears that we've gathered quite the colorful bouquet of singing roses to pluck an image from the work of Arthur Mackin. Looking over the archive, Susanna Clark, Osho, Conan the Barbarian, it occurs to me that perhaps no one is quite as surprised by the twists and turns of our journey as Phil, Meredith, and I are. We don't plan these things. They just kind of happen. We hope the surprises keep coming next year and that you'll come along for the ride. Thank you, at any rate, for being with us now. And a very special thanks to the members of our Discord and Reddit communities, and of course to all our patrons on Patreon. The deepest, deepest thanks. Your support is the show. Well, maybe your support plus the music. You may have noticed that Weird Studies is lucky to boast some of the best atmospheric tracks on the internet. All of it is composed, arranged, and performed by my brother, the composer Pierre-Yves Martel. Earlier this year, Pierre-Yves released Weird Studies, Music from the Podcast, Volume 1. It contains extended versions of some of the most memorable tracks he's written for the show. The album is available in LP, CD, and MP3 formats on his Bandcamp page. Just Google Weird Studies Bandcamp to find it. Okay, you're about to hear a conversation with the American photographer Shannon Taggart, whose work I discovered in a talk Shannon gave in June on her marvelous photography book, Seance. Seance documents Shannon's exploration of contemporary and historical spiritualism, a religious movement born in the 19th century during the explosion of what she calls the science of the invisible, the science of electricity, atoms, x-rays, and ghosts. Spiritualists are people who believe it is possible to communicate with the souls of the departed by means of mediumistic trance. Shannon's decades-long project does more to validate and celebrate the strange marriage of science, religion, and spectacle than anything else I've seen. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation and that you'll use the links in the show notes to experience Shannon's stunning photography firsthand. To all of you, from Phil, Meredith, and me, happy holidays and may the new year bring you much joy, health, love, and of course, that elusive sense of mystery. It's interesting because even in the time that JF and I have been doing the show, which is since the beginning of 2018, or for that matter, for the years immediately preceding that, I feel like there has been a 
fairly major shift in public acceptance, if not of specific supernatural paranormal things, at least a greater tolerance for talking about these things, less of an inclination to automatically shame people for bringing up this kind of stuff. And yesterday, as I was going through your marvelous book, man, what a wonderful book that yeah. is. Yeah. Thank you. On multiple levels. And I'm so excited to be talking about it today. Anyway, whatever. I was going through it. And there's a fair bit of emphasis in some of the essays in it on the way that spiritualism is a very woman-centered or woman-defined space. And that's an important part of what it is, a kind of female-friendly spirituality and something that pre-existed contemporary goddess worship and other sort of brands of feminist spirituality. I was wondering if perhaps a certain shift in the way we think about and talk about gender might be one of perhaps any number of factors contributing to this more generally open-minded or at least tolerant attitude towards spiritualism and related matters. Yeah, I think it's because of the age and how we're reassessing histories in general that then a lot of these esoteric influences have been uncovered. And I think that's part of the reason that people are more open to it. Spiritualism actually was one of the major vehicles for women getting the right to vote and for women's suffrage. And in its trickster way, like flipped the script to allow women to speak. And that was initially through this trance speaking where they weren't really speaking as themselves. And so this trick, and then people got used to women speaking, and also then it became a way of commerce and labor for women being a medium where there weren't that many roles for that. So it's it was a religion of radicals, really, and came from the Quaker abolitionists, the people who really wanted to change society were drawn to it and used this device of spirits to kind of take the power, like to flip the script in a very like trickster tale. And so I think in general, just because of all the reassessments of histories, you can't cleanse this out anymore. And, and I also think our time is we're in a liminal time and people are always more open to these topics in those eras, like change, breakdown of systems, then you, this stuff proliferates. Well, I, I was reading your introduction to the book and, um, there's a bunch of lines that really stuck out to me. And one was uncertainty is an inherent part of spiritualism's nature. And I know you, you bring this up in the context of talking about the whole problem of fraud and spiritualism and authenticity, but also reflecting how that same kind of problem exists in photography. And we'll get into all that eventually. But do you think that this epistemological humility that would allow for uncertainty to exist in a way of being, in a way of living, do you think that's one of the revolutionary or radical aspects of spiritualism? This kind of um, postponing of certainty and you know what I'm trying to get at? I think in spiritualism, they approach everything as like a scientific experiment. I mean, they really use the language of science to deal with their religious experience or their religious endeavor or their search for proof. And in that pursuit, they end up invoking uncertainty. Like the main tenet of spiritualism is to take the imagination seriously. 
it was also a response to corruption in the church and you know that babies would go to hell and this rejection of of all the fire and brimstone and that too so well i like what you're saying about how essentially it's empirical so it it has a modest premise from the start because it's approaching everything trying to find out what was actually going on instead of trying to declare yes truths and so what's surprising for many people is it's often lumped in with the occult or the new age or magic or things like that at least in people's minds where they actually reject that association they see themselves as western rationalists like product of the enlightenment and nothing they do is in secret and everything is it doing in pursuit of like repeating the experiment and and getting the evidence and nothing is hidden and they don't do actions to change and like a magical act where I'm trying to change reality or I'm trying to use my will. It's more of like an opening the space between the two worlds and to prove, to prove that the two worlds can connect. So they're a scientific in that kind of a mindset. And the, you know, the true endeavor was to try to merge religion and science. But for me, I had to accept the uncertainty in order to take it seriously, because a lot of times what you see is so absurd. And so, you know, like often I'll be sitting there in certain situations with the medium or at a seance and I'll be like, why am I here? This is the craziest, most absurd thing. But then you also realize there's this overlap of subjective and objective realities So when you're watching somebody get a reading or you're in a situation where a medium is giving messages, oftentimes it looks very silly. And then afterwards, many times people say, no, that was so exact and so precise and so important because X, Y, Z, what was going on in their lives and their minds. So you have to suspend disbelief. Actually, one of the things I wanted to ask you about are the uncertain boundaries between what is called the occult or magical practice or whatever and spiritualism, because in its insistence on empiricism, on not doing things in secret, that's also true to some extent of professional astrology, which also insists it's not exactly magic. It's really more of a science. And and that, you know, I'm, I want to take that seriously, the idea that perhaps there's kind of a continuum and there are some practices that look a little magical that nevertheless are getting a little bit closer on that continuum toward the science end. That being said, you know, reading through your book, there are a number of accounts of people talking about initiation, like events that happen to people that people come to conceive as an initiation upon a spiritualist path. And also the way a lot of signs kind of manifest in people's lives or like indicators, things that point them towards a spiritualist path that also a lot of these things are quite the same as the kind of things that get people on a magical path or the way magic people think about initiation or initiatory events that sometimes are formalized, like if you're in the Golden Dawn or something, but sometimes it's just sort of like something that happens to you, like a you know a mystical experience you have on a walk or something like that being itself a kind of initiation. Actually, that's a great time to ask you about your initiation into spiritual. How did you get interested in this? Well, when I was in high school, my cousin went to Lilydale, which is the world's largest spiritualist community. And I I grew up nearby. Uh, It's outside of Buffalo in the southern tier of New York State. In Lilydale was a 
kind of a tent town that turned into a cottage town and it still is there and there's mediums who live there and there's you know homes there and, and in the summer it kind of operates as like a psychic summer camp where you can go they have these free message services throughout the day in the town and they have classes and so my cousin went and got this message from a medium saying your grandfather's here and he wants you to know that he choked to death this is how he really died and she's like this woman is so crazy my grandfather neither of them choked to death like and she was kind of laughing it off in like this uncomfortable way and the woman was really intense about it and gave her this message and my grandfather told her a few things and so she went home and told her parents so it's my father's brother and his wife you know, I was trying to laugh it off. And my uncle said, no, that's true. He actually did choke to death in the hospital on food. And that's really how he died. But it was never talked about. And it wasn't, I mean, even my own father didn't tell my mother that. So when it all came out and erupted, and I remember it being very dramatic and everybody being very upset. And I was like, how could this woman know that? Like, how could that have happened? I was a teenager and it was right around the time I found photography also, but it just stuck with me in my head. And then I became like a photojournalist and I was working in newspapers and I really wanted to do my own project. And I was really very much drawn to documentary and fine art photography. So in my spare time, I thought, oh, I'll go spend a couple of weeks going back and forth to Lilydale and do this, you know, quirky little project about this town. And what I found there absolutely was not what I expected. <laughs> it was pretty shocking. I didn't expect to find it deeply related to culture and art and science in the way that it was, and also to photography. So that's how I got stuck. <laughs> so one of the things that you mentioned is the way that spiritualists define their practice against other practices that might be called a cult in terms of the kinds of entities that are being engaged with. And so there's a distinction for one thing between ghosts and spirits. Ghosts being understood as a kind of energetic recording, almost like a like an imprint, like a loop that gets stuck and it keeps playing itself. Whereas a spirit is a responsive entity with consciousness and perhaps a will. Also, though, interesting that there's a sort of, it would appear, um, some reticence about engaging with entities that are not spirits and that are likewise entities, but not spirits. And the definition, as I recall, is of, that these are entities with a lower vibrational rate or lower vibrations. I was wondering if you could explain that a little bit, because this is unfamiliar to me. Yeah, well, it could be both. So spiritualism, it's loosely organized, but their organizations really define a parameter of what you're actually allowed to do in spiritualism. And they say that they don't do anything for protection, but I could argue that this is one of their protective devices is to say, you know, we only talk with spirits of dead people. We don't talk to archetypes who have never lived. We don't talk to gods. We don't talk to you uh, aliens we don't talk to um, lower spirits. We don't chase ghosts. We are looking for communication and intelligence in order to prove that we survived death. 
So that's in its basic, but it's always been the way where people do spiritualist activities, but then don't define themselves as spiritualists or buck those rules. Um, but so that's why you have this, a lot of spiritual activity will happen in homes or in private circles where you're allowed to talk to entities or you're allowed to do, it, it kind of breaks off. But yeah, the recording thing about ghosts that you mentioned, I, that would kind of relate to that concept of the uh, Akashic records, you know, that everything that has ever happened or existed throughout time is somehow recorded and we can have access to it. And so if you think about a lot of the classic ghost stories, it'll always be like the same woman in the same dress walking down the same hallway, you know, almost like a videotape playing rather than an interaction. So that's how they're distinguishing those things. And then there's the whole Ouija board about the lower spirits. That is a spiritualist device, a Ouija board, but it's pretty much largely been abandoned by spiritualists, although some, you know, I've seen people use it. And that is to say, because you can pull in lower vibration beings, that's how it's described by some. And that spiritualism is all about intention and raising your vibration to get the highest and the best and to get the evidence and get the loved ones. And it's all in pursuit of healing. They also have like a form of mesmeric healing, like a laying on of hands that's very much part of every church event or, you know, there's a lot of institutions that do that strictly spiritual healing. So it's rationalist in its method, in its aims, but it's also a religious movement. It takes on a lot of the makings of a religion. It's humanist in a strange way too. It's like, it's not about investigating any old spiritual phenomenon, but it actually has a very clear aim. It, it's aimed at a kind of humanist objective of showing that there's life after death and allowing a kind of continuance or a, a continued dialogue with the dead. Is that an accurate way of portraying the movement? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's basically its essential project is strictly that. And so you'll meet people who get into all different types of other practices who also deal with spiritualism. And, and now, you know, it's not a cultural force, but when it first came about, there were millions of people practicing this and, and doing seances. And it was actually like a real challenge to the Catholic church at one point. And it's hard to believe that now. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, there's many reasons for that. Like they failed at proving once and for all that, using their methods and scientifically that, you know, there is no death. So in that failure, and then the fraud thing, which is such a fascinating aspect. Right. Yeah. We recently were talking, we did a show on skepticism recently, where we talked quite a bit about the work of George P. Hansen, his marvelous book, Trickster and the Paranormal, which anybody remotely interested in any of the subjects we cover on this show should run out and buy a copy right away. But also, even before I was familiar with that work, there's an essay by the magician Ramsey Dukes, a.k.a. Lionel Snell, who appeared on our show early on to talk about this essay, The Charlton and the Magus. And he made a point that I realized reading your book is like, okay, this is actually a pretty familiar phenomenon among spiritualists, the idea of mixed mediumship, the idea that fraud and authenticity are not opposed but actually in a kind of interdependent relationship. Lionel's talking about the incidents of fraud, or at least, you know, 
bending the truth, particularly in terms of like stage magic versus occult magic. But it seems like what he's saying transfers pretty directly to a lot of what comes out of your book, the sense that there are mediums who have authentic gifts who are able to do real things that are not explainable in conventional scientific terms, who nevertheless sometimes kind of need to mix it up a little bit, need to kind of give those powers a little bit of a help, a little bit of a shove. And I didn't realize like there's even a term for that, mixed medianship, which I imagine must be a rather controversial thing in spiritualist circles. Yeah, the term mixed mediumship is what spiritualists use. And some spiritualists describe it as, you know, when you bring money involved, that really good mediums will even resort to kind of faking things sometimes when they need to perform. But also, there's also like a researcher named Kenneth Batcheldor who used the term artifact induction, which is kind of, you know, like fake it till you make it. And that is the essence of ceremonial magic is you create the simulacrum and through that you make it real. And in spiritualism, that is not accepted. It's either true or false or that medium had a bad day or sometimes that happens to mediums. And I guess when I'm saying in spiritualism, I'm saying the organization's the official line. But, you know, the more that I delved into it, the more I realized that that approach is not acknowledging the complexity of what's happening. There's a researcher that I I interviewed for another project I'm working on. His name is Dennis Stillings. He was influential for George when George was writing that book. And he's written a lot about Psy and these kind of topics. And he said that he was compelled by this explanation that Psy or this power, whatever we're talking about, will take the path of least resistance. So. If it's easier to have the medium swallow the cheesecloth in an altered state rather than make a construction, that's the path it would take if you can accept that that's what's happening, if you accept that there's an intelligence behind this. And that kind of a lens is way more productive. Like you mentioned George Hansen's book. I actually stopped working on spiritualism and I was completely stuck and I abandoned my project, you know, because I, I started in 2001, but I couldn't stop thinking about the topic. So I started reading and researching and I found George's book and it changed everything for me, that lens that he offers with that book. And I mean, it's a brilliant classic. Dennis Stillings calls George Hansen the cant of the paranormal. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Right. It's a true classic and uh, must read for anybody interested in these topics. I'm wondering if I can press you on this issue, like what it was that was exhausting you about the subject or burning you out on the topic and what it was about George Hansen's theory that allowed you back into the topic. I didn't think that spiritualism was something you could photograph. It would just seemed like I was making pictures that were not psychologically true to the reality of what I was experiencing or what people in the room were experiencing. And that, you know, how do you photograph the invisible? That became my big question, my big search. And what does that mean? And how could you even document this and still stay true to it? And also, 
you know, one of the reasons I am in it is because there is a lot of humor that you cannot find anywhere else. Like this high absurdity, this absolutely so ridiculously absurd situations. And I would find myself in those. And now through George's book, I understand that's the good stuff. That high absurdity, that thing that doesn't make sense, that like, why would this perfectly delightful person that I just met and talked to do this absolutely opposite thing in this seance situation, like thinking on that and chewing on that, like I can do through George's frame on it, which is saying it's an integral part of it and you will never cleanse it away and that you have to accept that as part of it. You have to accept this absurdity, this, and also, you know, is that a way of how it hides this hiding quality, the hiding quality of, of these aspects of existence, like having the absurdity and the deceit and being caught, like actually lets it proliferate because the people who want to close it down and prove it, it keeps them kind of away and it lets it rain free. And so, so all of those ideas were very, very much presented to me for the first time in George's book. Describing him as the Kant of uh, parapsychology is fantastic. Uh, and just like Kant, he called himself the Copernicus of philosophy, right? So we could say that George Hansen is the Copernicus of parapsychology. And what he does is that he changes the whole kind of ontological axis that orients the science in a way. Whereas before, like, we had kind of a naive approach to this. We assume that we know this world. And now we're postulating about some other world which may or may not exist. And we're holding that world up to standards that we derive from this world. And of course, it always fails to prove its existence. But once you shift the phenomenological plane so that this world becomes fundamentally just as potentially just as strange as any idea of another world you might. And all of a sudden, all of the elements that you were editing out of your empirical assessment before become part of the phenomenon. It's the whole kind of event, for example of a seance that's of paranormal interest, not just the effect, which is just one part of, of the whole process. I can see how reading that book would make you realize that you can photograph the invisible because the invisible is always there in the visible. It's all about the situation and the event. And uh, I mean, some of the most troubling and um, uncanny images in your book don't necessarily have any like ectoplasm in them. A lot of them are just, you know, it looks like people, but there's something about the situation, about the weird convergence of all these various elements. Sometimes it looks, some of the photos look quite photojournalistic, like you just captured this moment, but then you have the kind of magic of photography as such, like any beautiful photograph is proposing to us a kind of um, meaningful connection of things that we know were not actually meaningfully connected because they weren't selected like in a painting. So photography has a kind of inherently paranormal aspect to it. And that's what I love about the book is that it's completely blurring the line such that we, there's really no difference at the end, in my mind anyways, between spiritualism and photography. It's like photography was always spiritualistic in a weird sense. That's what photography is. Yes. Thank you. I was surprised to find that. And that's where I'm at with it now. I mean, when you think about how strange, truly strange photography is, I think we've lost that. I mean, you're using light and time and you're capturing it in a black box. And 
it's frozen there forever. And they change actually as time moves on, the meaning and the photographs change. Like, especially with, you know, the last time you photographed somebody that then died, like that becomes this heavy statement when at the time when you had the photograph, it was not. And just this idea of like how light plays into time and you know, it's hard to articulate because I'm not a scientist, you know, I'm an artist. And But my son, I have a young son, he's six years old and he's obsessed with black holes. So we've been watching all these black hole videos, like, and I'm sitting there listening and watching and I'm like, this sounds like a camera in certain ways. Even like the event horizon, where it's like whatever goes into it is like recorded and exists there. And the fact that time behaves differently in this black hole where light cannot, you know, escape. And I don't know where I'm going with it, but like, I think there is something to these like black places where you can't really observe and you can capture. You get bogged down. I, anytime I try to talk about time, I immediately just turn into word soup because it's just. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah. It's That's really that. par for the course. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's really complicated, but like, so. Well, I guess I see some of the pictures have long exposures, like this collection of time. And I had a, a professor that I um, studied with. She said to me, because a lot of people say, oh, that's just a blurry picture. It's just a long exposure. But then she said to me, well, when we photograph runners, we're photographing them at like a fraction of time that's completely abstracted from their movement. So. That's a way to think about it. But then I started to really think about it. Well, what is a long exposure? What is a collection of time? What does it do? Like, what are you doing? I, I see it more of like a concentration of time. It's also weird because a long exposure, if you really think about it, it's sort of mixing like almost like an automatic drawing and a film element. So I started to see it like that. And, and then seeing the synchronicities that happen with it, like started to really trip me out like in an exciting way but also spooky in a spooky way really yeah because there's all these wonderful photos in the book where they're blurred like the face of the medium is blurred presumably because the medium is moving a little too fast for your exposure and the, the light levels in the room and all that but it creates a meaningful image so the accident of the blur is actually an integral part of that moment like you're capturing something which if you'd use the proper exposure to get like a pristine, clear image, you would have had less of the reality than if you include the blur. So it's funny because uh, one of my favorite philosophers, Gilles Deleuze, had, he had a problem with photography. He, had, he didn't, I completely disagree with him on photography. He thought that it trapped us in um, representation. So we're just stuck representing this world and we're, it can't actually create something new. But that whole critique of photography starts to fall apart when you start thinking it in the terms that you're giving us, which is that you're capturing not the kind of fake slice of time, a little representative image, but rather a, an event, a moment that's captured in the photo. And that might require long exposure. And that the artifacts that result from, let's say, an improper quote unquote exposure those artifacts become part of what you're actually recording and capturing and creating. So you're creating something new out of the moment. Like the photograph is not just documenting the moment, but it's also kind of contributing to the moment. Like when you take a picture of a person who then passes away and you look at that photo, 
there was something in that moment. That was the last moment that person was photographed. So that was a fact even then. It's just that nobody knew it. And the photo reveals it, you know, through its own self-making. It creates a magic of that moment, which no one at that time could have been aware of, but is nevertheless a part of what makes that moment so special. It's really hard to articulate this stuff, I agree, but... Yeah, I mean, the first photographer that I ever discovered was Deanne Arbus. I really felt she was taking me into her mind. She was showing me something that I would never see with my eyes, but it would be right there in my face if I was standing next to her. And that's what the great photographers do. And I mean, even as like a press shooter, when you're, we're all using like the same cameras, mostly with the same lenses a lot when you're on these shoots. And you know, there'll be people there. You're like, God, how did he get that shot? It's so different from yours. It's so. And so then it goes back to this observation in a black box being caught idea. Like, what are you actually really doing? Your consciousness is as a photographer is playing in. It's always been a mystery to me how there is a kind of a value added. I mean, the low hanging fruit objection to photography is to say that there's no artistic activity going on like a painter has to learn how to paint has how to manipulate brush strokes in such a ways to create certain visual effects just as a composer has to learn how to put notes together to make melodies and harmonies and so on but the argument goes a photographer doesn't have to do anything except press a button and point a camera and yet in my own life this has been proved wrong again and again my dad was a amateur photographer and you know, he never really talked that much. It's funny because he was like a philosophy professor. So he was hyperverbal and hyperintellectual, but he never really talked about what it was that he got from photography or why he loved it so much as an art form. But in what he did rather than what he said, I always had the sense that it was in framing the world for a photograph that there was a fundamental creative act, not merely a passive recording act. And that that creative act was something, I mean, for one thing, deeply satisfying to him, but I feel like for him, it transformed the world. Like the world becomes a little bit different in the viewfinder of the camera. Almost like that's the kind of a magic that you're doing as a photographer upon the world. Yeah. The frame, when you put a frame around something, it changes the things within it. But it also draws out things that were there, but you couldn't have seen if you hadn't framed them, right? Right. right. Yeah, like yeah. Arbus said, you know, her photographs are always better or worse than she ever thought. And as a photographer, you know that like it's the automatic process is what you're kind of doing this unconscious act. It's it's all about the automatic process. And like a lot of spiritualism is this reverence for the automatic process. So that's like another connection that I see. Um, yeah. And, and something in us that is not just intellectual, something that's coming from other levels of consciousness, kind of expressing itself. And you, I guess you could say this, all art does that to a certain extent, but in photography, because it's like art tuned to one precise moment, it's like, where do you place yourself and when do you take the photo? Of course, there's a lot more to photography than that. There's light and there's all kinds of stuff and lenses and focal lengths and all that. But ultimately it comes down to this one, this hot moment where you choose to take the photo and that's where the magic happens. It's like extreme art. It's like an extreme sport because you're, you're putting everything at this one. It's, it's a performance art too, in a weird way, isn't it? Like 
photography because you it, it's it's when you choose to push the button that that uh, creates the moment but you just touched on something interesting another line i pulled from your text which is that spiritualism is the shadow of technology uh of modern technology i really like that idea because well photography and spiritualism started almost in the same place like in a modern popular photography like the kodak factory was in rochester you know in the same state the same part up in upstate new york where also spiritualism was born and spiritualism and photography have been kind of involved with one another since the beginning and that plays into a kind of um a broader kind of theory about how a lot of the spiritual movements and occult ideas in the 19th century were really tied in with technological developments can you talk a little bit about that whole aspect of it at the time when spiritualism came about the science of the invisible was being realized right so you have germ theory, you have radiation, electricity being harnessed, the x-ray, like that was a bit later. But um, so this idea that invisible forces were indeed around us and that we could now prove them and capture them, their pursuit of the spirit world in that context made a lot more sense, you know, and that maybe we would prove all of this with photography. And so when I learned photography, you know, I, I went to college for photography in the 90s and none of this like spirit photography or this history of trying to photograph the invisible was in any of the history books. I mean, since 2005, there have been exhibitions and books about this type of experimental photography. But, you know, they were doing those experiments. They thought, why couldn't you photograph ghosts or spirits with the camera? And uh, so I think it's very telling too as this science for the invisible kind of you know blew open and really shook people's consciousness that also you would have the spiritual helpers which you could see as the mediums or the spiritualists they're kind of like this extension to help you navigate it like religiously spiritually like in a different way you would expect with everything becoming so rational and so scientific, you could cleanse that stuff out. But then, no, this whole new movement just explodes right in front of you.
to talk about one particular photograph in your collection, the very last one, uh, or at least I think it's the last one, the one where Gordon Garforth, a medium, is displaying ectoplasmic masks. And the last photo of that series, a clean-shaven man appears to have a kind of a thick mustache. And you didn't care for that photo at first because... You thought it kind of looked like a little bit like a Hitler mustache and who wants that. But then he liked it and he was like, oh, yeah, this is my great grandfather. Could, could maybe talk a little bit about that incident? Because it just struck me as being like your jaw must have been on the floor when that happened. Yeah. And it played out over time, too. So I had photographed this uh, medium many times. I had some of my strangest experience with a medium named Gordon Garforth. And so I end the book with pictures of Gordon and. I was in a situation where he just went into an impromptu trance and it was so dim. I mean, I think the lighting was by a security light and I took some pictures of him in this trance state. And he said, you know, yeah, when I go into trance, these masks come over my face and I change and I I look very different. And so I got the pictures back and, you know, there are long exposures and he does, he looks like a different person in many of them. And so I edited to the ones that I thought were good and I had them on my computer and I was going to give them to him on a thumb drive. And I've had this one picture that just spooked me. It had this tiny mustache and I was like, oh, that's a little bit too Hitler-esque. And yeah, I, I don't, I had a visceral reaction to the picture, which is also interesting in and of itself. Like I didn't want to give it to him. And he came over to my computer. He said, that is the picture. That's the one. And I, I didn't ask him what he meant. I put it in the folder. I didn't think about that picture again. And then six months later, I was back in England for a conference and it was near his house and he invited me over. Said, oh, I have to show you something. And he brings out this carte visite of his great grandfather. And it looks exactly like the picture I took that he loved. I mean, really in a very uncanny, like very unsettling way. and. For him, it was not even amazing. And he didn't even think to tell me it was, oh, it's his great grandfather. That's why, I mean, he was just so accepting of this as being true. And so then I end the book with that. And it's also a way to end the book with a picture of a picture. And that's kind of a theme of like the picture of the picture is that kind of gets meditated on throughout my thought process and the text and like the kind of the magic of the process or like the meta-ness of it all. And Tony Orsler wrote an essay for the book and he starts with, you know, Mumler, the first spirit photographer, starts taking these spirit photographs of like people with their dead relatives, but soon he changes to, you don't even have to be there. I can take your picture and photograph it with the spirits. So the pictures start to represent the people and that automatically, immediately, it's always already looking for this medium to show us other worlds. Like it was very fast from when it got into the hands of, you know, the everyday practitioner that they were looking to transcend this world with this media. Right. And to this day, I mean, the internet is filled with like pictures of orbs or I took a photo and didn't notice this UFO in it. And I, and I, we kind of laugh that off, but it's weird when it happens to you. I, it happened to me. I did a ghost tour of New Orleans when I was in my early twenties. And, uh, I was taking photos with my cheap camera. This was in like 2002 or three. So I had some crappy digital camera and I was taking photos of in really dark conditions of these buildings and stuff. And 
there's this one old building and there's this face in the window. I mean, I could have put that on YouTube and people would have said, oh, blah, blah, blah. you know, they would have. But when it happens to you, it's really weird to see this strange ghostly face looking at the camera where there was no face when you took the picture. So photography retains this strangeness. You know, it's not just that it was novel at the time. People didn't know. That's what we tell ourselves. But photography keeps generating these effects. And what you do in this book is you you yourself show us these effects in action. Like one of my favorite photos is the one where the medium's hand is enlarged. And I remember you at the, cause I attended a talk that you gave uh, during the summer. And I remember you telling the story, maybe you should tell the story. Cause that, that's a really kind of hair raising episode that happened on, in your research. So I'll let you kind of tell the yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. That was with Gordon. When I first met him, he was like, oh, you know, when I go into trance, the spirits will change the shape of my hands and my face. And this idea of elongation or the body morphing, and, you know, that's in the Catholic saints too, like elongating or changing shape. In, in spiritualism, it's called um, transfiguration a lot. And they use this, uh, some say ectoplasm is what the ectoplasmic energy is, what makes it possible. But he tells me I'm going to see all this stuff. And I, don't really think I'll see anything because a lot of times you'll meet mediums and they'll say, Oh, I do this X, Y, and Z. And then you don't have that experience. And, but he invited me to bring my camera. We went into this situation where he's sitting under red lights. He goes into a trance and his wife said, okay, now the spirits will manipulate his hands. And so in his trance, he just holds his hand in front of his body and moves it slowly in front of it. And what I see as it moves, is this normal hand skip into this gigantic hand, like right in front of my eyes. And it did not look like a glove. It did not look like a prop. It looked like a hand turned into a gigantic hand. And I screamed out, which is like, you're really not supposed to do that in a stance because it's like you can bring the medium out of trance. And I, I couldn't help myself. It was that shocking. It was disturbing. And everybody else in the the room started then making noise too and screaming out. And I was thinking, okay, did they see the hand too? Or are they just screaming because I saw this hand? And then he pulled it back and it was gone. And so I was thinking, okay, so that was a hypnotic suggestion. I'm under these red lights. You know, I manifested that with my mind's eye because I was led to believe it. And so when I see my pictures, it's not going to be on there. And then when I got my picture back, it was, it was this absolutely grotesque giant hand and it looked different from my experience of it but still as gigantic it actually looks scarier more grotesque in the picture and but you know I've shown to people and they'll say oh like the historian at Lilydale oh Shannon that's a glove that's a and I'm like I was right in front of the man it was not a glove <laughs> I was like it wasn't that dark honestly even though it was red light I was six feet away from him it was not he had a short sleeve t-shirt on it looked like flesh jump into it looked like a special effect and so other people say oh you know it's some kind of like a visual play with the lights and the way the light was it just like made it look like it I honestly do not know what happened but and I've seen him do it other times since and I've seen it again but never in this way this pronounced way and sometimes I've seen you know he's done it and it's like oh did it happen I don't you, you know it 
so that speaks to too, like, I've talked to George about some magicians who will say, you know, they'll do a trick and they do it over and over again. And then for whatever reason, someday it just works a whole lot better than it ever did. And there's no rhyme or reason to why it does. But I love that, like, you have to interpret that image and that it's inviting an interpretation and it's inviting, um, like, there's no answer. I don't, I, you know, I don't know. Your book demands an interpretation at the same time as it affirms the unknowable. <laughs> it's like, you must interpret, you will never interpret in any conclusive way. And that's what's so great about this book. It's what makes it such a masterpiece. And, and this seems to me to be the problem with that rather Philistine understanding of photography as the mere reproduction of reality. And therefore, how could be an art? All you're doing is reproducing what's there. What this last exchange kind of indicates is that in photography, as in like existence itself, and this is an aspect of life in the spiritual or spiritualist domain, but it's also an aspect of reality at its most mundane. It's an aspect of photography. There's always more in the frame than you thought there was. Like something JF said earlier in the conversation, you take a picture and you are making a harmony of different elements that you didn't choose the way a painter would choose them, right? There are things that to some extent are accidentally arranged in the frame. And yet in framing them, there are things emerging from that collection, from that correspondence of things that exceed your planning, exceed your ability to perceive them, even like JF, your story about taking this photo. And then when you see it later, there's a, a face and a window. One of my favorite images is right at the beginning of the photos section of this book. It's over on page 55 of spiritualists waiting. It would seem in the wings of some auditorium or in a kind of a green room, looking out at, the, at what seems to be a stage waiting to go out and deliver some kind of presentation. I love this photograph. There's nothing eldritch or spooky going on in this photograph. It could just as easily be, you know, a, a piano trio waiting to take the stage. But the mood of expectancy, these figures leaning in towards the doorway, the peculiar quality of light that's cast across the oriental rug on the floor, the piano sort of shoved into a corner with its white and black keys shining out like a Cheshire cat smile from the dimness, the umbrella hanging incongruously on the wall. All of these elements. I love the umbrella. <laughs> the umbrella makes it. Yeah. But I bet nobody like carefully positioned the umbrella there. And who knows, maybe you didn't even notice it was really there until. I didn't even see the umbrella when I took it. And then that's what, you know, it's so important to the picture working. Little nod to surrealism there. And uh, l'autre amont. I mean, I'm just looking at this photo now and it it's my go-to example whenever I'm trying to argue that art necessarily and by its nature restores us to a kind of immediate consciousness of like the absolute mystery of existence. My example is always a, a photograph of a door. I always say that. Imagine a photograph of a door. Well, imagine that in the real world, the door was leading to like the washrooms at the back of some cafe or something. But once you frame that door out of its original kind of worldly context, you've just made it a kind of door, like a door. And all of a sudden, all of the archetypal aspects of doorness <laughs> come out at you. Where does this door lead? What is it? It's an opening onto something else. And in this photo, 
which um, Phil just described, you have these people looking through a door with this expectancy, this kind of urgent expectancy. One of, you know, the man seems to be leaning quite fast so that he's slightly blurred. And the strangeness, it's like this photo kind of summarizes spiritualism, this expectant looking into another world through a door into this other place. And of course it was like, I don't know what the, the story, I didn't read the text for this photo, but I'm sure that there was a quite a mundane explanation for what it was. But once captured, we're showing that it doesn't matter if in everybody's mind, it's once they step through the door and do the session that the magic will happen. The magic was already happening there. It's just that it wasn't apparent. It was already there. It's just a beautiful photo. It's powerful as hell too. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I love, I love, yeah. um, that was one of my early, earliest pictures that I made that I was happy with and trying to like, just racking my brain. I th there's a lot of pictures in the book and it's kind of like me going back and forth every way I can try to visualize this. But, uh, but also too, it's so expansive because I started immediately being inspired by spiritualist history and the spiritualist aesthetic and their ideas and ways of thinking. And then when I would try to show the pictures, people didn't fully get it because this is so foreign to, in our culture now, or at least it was then for sure. You know, now spiritualist artists like Hilma Afklin and, you know, people are realizing this and accepting this, but people hadn't even heard of spiritualism at this point. I'm someone who I've been kind of like steeped in the occult to a certain extent since I was in my teens. I've always been interested. And I have to admit that until I attended your talk, I had the sense that spiritualism was was over, was finished, was something of the past. I didn't realize it still existed. It's true that I had heard stuff about Lilydale and stuff. And afterwards I was like, oh yeah, I knew that. But it, it I had the sense that it was kind of a thing of the past. I mean, it definitely... I don't think it's a growing movement. And especially now in Lilydale, you know, in 2001, when I first went there, there were actual mediums who were still living there who had been around when it was a force in culture or knew the pioneer, you know, the early people who were famous or the people who were attached in certain ways to the actual history. And now many of those people are gone. And it's, you know, I don't know who's going to replenish spiritualism. I mean, it's interesting to see what will happen with it. But yeah, it's, it's, it's more alive in other countries. Like, for example, Brazil, it's mixed with other forms of worship and it's uh, spiritism, you know, uh, the spiritist, you know, through the French lens that then goes and mixes with African elements. And but yeah, it's that it still exists is amazing. But like you said, though, I'm sure you you didn't know it was such a big part of culture then, right? Well, yeah, I had a sense of that, I think, but not to the extent right. that you were able to demonstrate. I didn't realize, uh, for example, the connection with women's suffrage. I could see how it was true once you explained them, like, oh, of course, but i never seen that connection. But now <laughs> it's obvious once you look at it. And it seems like some of the most important movements are always kind of swept under the carpet and we kind of just erase them from history. The connection between spiritualism and abolitionism, for example, mm -hmm. you make a very strong case for that. And I don't think that's in many textbooks, right? And so, yeah. Yeah. yeah and I mean, the problem with, or not the problem, but this new realization that the first abstract artists were women in trance, you know, 
Yeah. And some of them predate Kandinsky by 50 years. But not only that, Kandinsky had a huge library filled with spiritualist texts and was very right. interested in the topic. That has been not talked about much in, in terms of Kandinsky. And but then even to preface it, the women in trance brought it forth first. And now that's being acknowledged. So what does that do to the trajectory of art history? Like a lot of people are now grappling with that. And then I had this, you know, you suggested that Herzog documentary and I hadn't seen it. Cave of Forgotten Dreams. There's an absolutely chilling moment where the archaeologist finds the oldest cave paintings and they find uh, an Aborigine who also is a painter. And they said, oh, maybe we could interview him and kind of find out, you know, see what the correlation is. And so he's asked him a question of what he was painting. And the response was, I am not painting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's something inherently mediumistic about the creative act as such, in a way, that these mediums, these women of the 19th century were calling our attention to that essential part of what it is to to be human in this world to create things and to it's only now it seems that we're finally hearing them or at least that many of us are finally hearing them that's a wonderful aspect i can't help but see um parallels and i'm not meaning this in a way that i want to compare you to another artist but in many of the portraits especially the medium's cabinet portraits so another thing i learned that i didn't know about spiritualism i think this is more in the on the british side the medium cabinets or do those exist in the u.s as well they originated in the u.s and there's like a, okay. a very interesting history i can speak to but now they're more present in people who do quote-unquote physical mediumship which is when you're trying to invoke things in the dark right and so as that type of mediumship wanes then the cabinet wanes so so the um, cabinet's kind of like a booth again a black box i guess so that the, the medium sits in and then yeah and then kind of it's kind of like a like I see it as a kind of like spaceship for traveling those worlds or something. So, yeah, but yeah. And the way that you shot those in some of the images is quite striking, a kind of similarity to Francis Bacon's painting. Is this something that you mm. noticed? It's uh, this is so funny that you bring this up. Yeah. He's one of my favorite painters and he does talk a lot about chance and using the paint in a way where he can invoke as many chance encounters with the surface and the paint but I was just listening to an interview with the artist James Tunney with Jeffrey Mishlove, and he did um, a talk about Francis Bacon. And I knew that Bacon had looked at spirit photographs. I knew that he was aware of spirit photography. I knew he had them in, in his studio. But Tunney, in his research, says that studies for crucifixion, his breakthrough, according to Tunney, that was very directly inspired by Shrek Notzing's images of a woman named Eva C in a cabinet with these uh, manifestations coming out that he got interested in Shrek Notzing because Shrek Notzing was also a sexologist and then became really inspired by the parapsychology material. Oh, wow. And it had a direct effect on one of his masterpieces. This connection between parapsychology and art has been overlooked by everybody. You know, the parapsychologists could care less and it's been cleansed out of histories and or not even parapsychologists themselves, like focusing on the science part and any kind of their material culture is, you know, it's irrelevant other than its ability to prove. 
So I think that the legacy is for the artists. Hearing about that direct connection between Francis Bacon and the Eva C. Shrucknutzing spirit photographs was really exciting and mind-blowing. And he even says that the structures and some of the paintings were likely inspired by the cabinet that she's sitting in or the cabinets that he is seeing. Yeah, because I mean, some of them, they look like Bacon paintings. So you have the cabinet, the frame within a frame thing. And then the, the subject, the medium, looks like there's a, a strong quality of agony that I sense in a lot of the photos. Like these people look like they're being torn to pieces in a way by these forces. And that's accentuated by the blur because of the, you know, the exposure rate. So you're getting this kind of blurred face and it, it just looks so Bacon-esque. But it's like this was happening, <laughs> you know, like this, you went and captured this reality. I, I, I'm not surprised, but I am surprised to hear you say that because now I was looking at Francis Bacon's paintings last night after looking at your book and I'm like, my God, was he aware of this? Did he go to seances? Was he a spiritualist himself? And I know that he wasn't, but it's amazing to know that he was inspired by those images. And it goes to show how deeply that phenomenon and the photography in the early days and affected and really had a, a huge influence on art that we're not a cognizant of uh, until now. You know, it's crazy. Once again, you know, we find ourselves up against a limited idea of art, like a narrow idea of art that is challenged by occult or paranormal or supernatural phenomena. Why is it that mainstream art history has been so slow to recognize, for example, the debt of someone like Kandinsky to like the thought forms of Annie Bezant um, from that book, Thought Forms? Why are we slow to recognize the influence of, you know, spiritual, occult, etc. technologies on art? And one thing is that we, in the professional talking about art business, tend to rely, after all these years where we're nominally hip and postmodern, uh, we still are kind of bought in on a relatively naive idea of psychological functioning, where an artist will intend something and then write or paint or compose out an embodiment of their intention, that there is some kind of intention at large. And you know what I was saying before about how photography always seems to exceed the bounds of uh, the intention of the photographer, or the photographer is always capturing things that go beyond just a flat recording of reality. I feel like that's something that art generally does, that there's always this sort of way that artists are creating things where just as the person in your anecdote, Shannon, was saying, well, you know, my hand isn't painting, you know, the spirit is painting. I'm not painting, the spirit is. Musicians say this kind of stuff all the time. I'm not playing. The music is playing through me. Anybody who's ever gotten into any kind of flow state playing music knows that feeling. The problem with this, though, is that if we want to engage in any kind of art criticism where we're saying, okay, so what are the effects that the artist is making in his or her artwork, the sentence, the way I phrase that, already assumes some degree of autonomous psychological agency, but the reality might be quite otherwise. Artists might always be in the position of materializing things far in excess of what they know or intend. 
But when we're faced with a very concentrated version of that, you know, automatic writing or whatever, artworks created under conditions of trance or spirit possession, it simply raises that problem to a higher pitch. What is the intention that we can attribute to the artistic agency? Uh, it turns out to be actually kind of tricky. Yeah, yeah. Spiritualism brings about all sorts of questions of authorship. I mean, kind of intensifies this question of authorship. And I'm just thinking of Michael Jackson, for example, when he would say, I hate taking credit for the songs because I didn't really write them. They were just there for me. And he even, you know, testifies this under oath once in a deposition. I didn't write the song. It was given to me. And I, because he was, I had to talk about his process, you know, and the idea of the muse or how genius used to mean not that I am a genius. It used to mean you have a voice in your head that's yeah. giving you inspiration. And that's what genius is like. Yeah. Yeah. A diamond. Yeah. Yeah. The diamond, the diamonic reality, which then becomes demonic in the Christian lens. And that excess of meaning isn't just a matter for the artist, it's also a matter for the audience, for the viewer. Something that is so interesting to me about your photographs, by photographing in low light conditions and having necessarily slow shutter speeds so that any movement is going to be captured as a blur, number one, you're opening up kind of the aperture of time. So what's a moment, an instant, is no longer just like a a razor blade slice through time. It's kind of broader and vaguer. A photograph crystallizes a moment of indefinite duration, which is represented in the blur of action of a, of a long exposure. But something that I thought was maybe implicit in what you were saying before, talking about the transformation in your photographic practice after you read George Hansen's work, having been frustrated at the inability to photograph the invisible, beginning to approach the invisible or the spiritual, the manifestation of the other world as not something necessarily that would be caught in a crisp documentary type image, but something perhaps emergent from synchronicities around the photograph. So like that last photograph in your book that we were talking about before with um, Gordon Garforth and the appearance of a mustache, you know, somebody could look at that photograph and say, well, it wasn't a mustache. It's just some kind of artifacting, a kind of a blur as a result of the the low light conditions and slow exposure time, etc. But even if that were true, that doesn't at all explain the symbolic resonance between that dark patch on the photograph and the appearance it gives to the medium. It doesn't explain the connection between that and the photograph of the medium's great-grandfather. In the destabilizing of the image from like a temporal instant and becomes kind of blurry, it becomes a little bit like a black mirror or a scrying stone that a magician is going to stare into. And in the indefiniteness of the image, you start seeing things that are meaningful and that lead you to whatever is the next thing. Photography, the way you practice it, becomes something that exceeds not only perhaps your own intentions, but also any intention that the viewer might have. The viewer, too, can look at these photographs as if they were scrying stones to find 
significance. And significance is not something that shows up in a piece of litmus paper. It's not something that we can send out to the lab and they'll put it in a centrifuge and we get a report back. You know, meaning, what's the test of meaning? I don't know. Because like for meaning to exist, a person has to be there finding the meaning. The meaning is emergent in the viewer's relationship to the photograph. And that exceeds any kind of, I don't know, narrow documentary intention. Yeah, the scrying point is really important, you know, because the mirror image has always been seen as the spirit world. So what are what are you doing when you make a photograph? You are taking a mirror image like you are looking into the representation of reality to see the other world, the scrying. And a lot of the techniques that spiritualists use, even though they say they don't do magic, they work with technology a lot. It's very similar to scrying. They use computer screens, they use digital cameras, they use computer printers. I mean, they I've seen anything is scryable for them. You know, it's an enchanted world and it's domestically enchanted often, which, you know, why you see a lot of the objects that are apported or that are magical. It's like handkerchiefs or spoons or, you know, they use a table to do the tipping. I mean, it's like very much about the enchanted domesticity of. But the scrying thing, yeah, it's, I think about photography and in relation to scrying a lot. In a sense, every great photograph is a kind of tarot card and <laughs> uh, that it has all these disparate elements that converge in this strange, inscrutable meaning that calls for an immediate subjective interpretation on the part of whoever happens to be confronted with it. It asks for a reaction and for an interpretation. I, I'm just, I'm still staring at that photo with the two the woman and the man's looking through the door. I just noticed there's another door in the back there and it's slightly open. It's almost, you're expecting a kind of spirit to creep out of that other door. It's just like, I, I could write an essay easily on this photo. Um, but like, so it's just like the pregnancy of meaning in these, in these images. And I think that the fact you chose this subject matter just made that aspect of photography as such, which is, Maybe usually we, we are able to edit out that whole part of it. It's hard to hide from the magic of photography in a book that's about that exact thing. That's about spirit photography. That's about photographing the invisible. And so I really commend you for having created this book. It's by far my favorite photography book ever. Um, and, thank you. you know, oh, thank you. you no, know, but it's seriously, and I don't mean that just to, you know, you know how, um, certain like a film like 2001 a space odyssey kind of somehow is a film it's a film about you know space travel and human evolution but it's also deeply about film it's about cinema itself the monolith being the kind of black screen and all that or like hamlet you take a much earlier example is not just a play about a danish prince and all that but it's also a kind of play about theater itself it it, it finds that elusive medium specificity that's inherent in the medium it's using uh, to use clement greenberg's term i think that this book really captures the message of the medium of photography itself and it's kind of the 2001 of photography <laughs> of photography books every time i look at this book i learn something and i discover something not just about spiritualism or about your style but also about myself weirdly um or about francis bacon yeah, I, I don't want to end without talking a little bit about Kai Mugi. Is that how you pronounce his name? Uh, yeah, Kai Mugi. He's German. Yeah. 
and the whole ectoplasm part, because I know that that was really important for you. You you were like on a quest to see ectoplasm. So can we talk a little bit about that maybe? And that could be our last segment. Yeah. So uh, since the beginning of this project, I became obsessed with the topic of ectoplasm, you know, seeing this in these vintage images, these gauzy streams and uh, so ridiculous looking, but also oddly beautiful and spooky and scary and like gross and just so transgressive. And I wanted to know what that was supposed to mean. And so ectoplasm is for spiritualists, it's this binding of this physical proof that you can merge the realms of life and death. And it's this oozy substance that's actually very photographic, light sensitive and um, sticky and pliant and develops in the dark. And so, you know, in Lilydale, there was no ectoplasm going on, right? And a lot of these spiritualist camps and churches have banned dark room ectoplasmic seances because there's a lot of fraud that's very well documented that was discovered. But all the spiritualists I talked to believed in the reality of ectoplasm. They believed that ectoplasm did happen and that it's possible. So I said, I got to find where it is. There's got to be somewhere in the world people doing these seances. And it took me to England and then ultimately to Europe. And actually Kai Mugi, so he's a German medium who does ectoplasmic seances, but he didn't emerge until 2008. He's at, you know, he's in his early 50s. And so in 2008, he started this ectoplasmic circle and started publishing pictures of his ectoplasm online. And so he and I were in touch for a long time. And finally, in 2013, I was able to photograph Kai. And I didn't know what I was going to see because I'd never seen, you know, some, up to that point, people would say, you're going to see ectoplasm. And what they were talking about would maybe be, you know, you'd sit in a dark room and what you'd see would be ectoplasmic, but it wasn't an objective, performative experience of ectoplasm like in the pictures. So I brought my camera to his seance, the lights go off, he goes into trance, we're in the dark for a long time, and then he says the spirits say they're going to show the ectoplasm and the lights go on. It was like a total dream theater, like I was in an Eva C. Shrek Natsing photograph it had just come to life in front of my eyes and there was all this like material that looked like spiderweb material filled with photos all around it and then the lights go off and then it was over and I wasn't expecting it to be like so fully realized and it was different as I I would expect and Kai would say okay that's because the lights were off as the ectoplasma was building and so yeah, so then I end up getting these classic images of Kai that look like it's 1900, but it's not. It's 2013, and it's there's an inversion though. It's a male medium. There's one in particular where it's there's this ectoplasm oozing out of his mouth, and it looks like a bundle, a baby bundle with a picture of a man in it. It almost looks like it's this male medium birthing an old man. So it's like this inversion of all of these tropes. It was just like such a mind mindfuck of an experience like truly like in every way and even though it was this objective presentation of ectoplasm everybody had a different experience or feeling about it and kai calls himself a neo-shaman he'll say things like i'm not trying to make you believe anything i just want you to have a experience outside of your normal thought pattern 
you know, he's very um, ambiguous about what is exactly happening. And he is unapologetic to his critics. There was these parapsychologists who were studying Kai for a long time and, and they were publishing papers. One of them is Stephen Brody and saying, you know, arguing for the reality of Kai's ectoplasm. And so then another researcher gets involved and somehow they get Kai's eBay account and they find that he bought two kilograms of like Halloween spiderweb material and they hack into, you know, and show the proof. And then Kai said, well, I just bought that to show the difference between the real and the fake. And it gets into this whole saga of fighting through these papers through, you know, and then people accused him of using magic tricks, all this stuff. I thought, what is Kai going to do now? Like, is it over? You know, he, people have accused him of fraud, but he comes back bigger and better than ever and starts like showing these full materializations of spirits. And this was something that was popular in the 1870s of spiritualism. And even in the 1870s, it was like so controversial that one of the pioneers of spiritualism left spiritualism. Andrew Jackson Davis was like, I'm out. Once you get these manifestations, I don't want anything to do with these full materializations of bodies. So it was just a huge scandal and a huge shock that in the year, you know, when I photographed him in that type of a situation was 2018. So in 2018, that is this medium saying he can fully materialize full bodied spirits. And I, I was like, I have to go and see it. So I contacted him and he said, well, you can come, but I don't, I can't guarantee that there's going to be a materialization. And I only do this in Switzerland or Germany, He'll meaning he only do it around people he feels safe with. So I was invited, I went, and there was a full materialization and I photographed it. Henry Alcott, one of the founders of Theosophy, came and appeared with a face and the robe and I photographed it. And I got back to my Airbnb from in Basel, Switzerland. And Kai is very, you know, he directs all of his own photos. He's he's like a true media medium. He has a lot, you know, he publishes his own documentation. He said, as soon as you get back, send me the pictures. And I said, okay. So I get a picture, send it. And he, five minutes later, writes back, oh, Shannon, this is awful. It is a mediumistic preterm birth. It's a miscarriage of a materialization. And you can never show this photo. This is not how Alcott wanted to appear. Like, no, they can never be seen. And I was like, oh my gosh, I came all the way to Switzerland. I saw a manifestation, I photographed it, and now I can't use it. And I was willing, I said, okay, that, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to use it if you don't want. And so then three weeks later, Kai has a photographer he works with a lot named Marcus Kepler. And he was sitting and Marcus Kepler had the camera and they actually documented the proper birth of Alcott. And so... Marcus scooped me with the photo and he got the good photo. And this was posted on Facebook and on the blogs. And then Kai said, well, now you can use the photos because people know he had to come back fully formed. So <laughs> your, your bad photo of the malformed spirit is okay. Wow. Uh, your photo is way better. Sorry. I'm just going to say right now, because it's just sort of like, yeah, what he wanted clearly was a less ambiguous photo, but it's the ambiguity that makes it a magical image. 
one of the fun parts of the book is that so like it's a photo book in the true sense of a photo book where the pictures run without text but then in the back is like the thumbnail with my stories and I was able to use some of Kai's images that he's published in his blog to fill out the edges of the story or give you the visual. It, he's a fascinating figure, Kai, and he is loved and hated within spiritualism. And he really makes like the proper spiritualists very angry. And some have even told me, you're not allowed to sit at our sitting because you photographed Kai. Like he's that controversial in spiritualism. And so I'm curious to see where how he progresses. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>